Bounty hunting is a complicated profession, and that's why we're here to talk about The Mandalorian. My name is Dan Morin, and this is our uh, season two uh, of our Flashcast TV recap show for The Mandalorian, airing currently on Disney+. And this week we're going to be talking about the first episode of season two. And as always, I have invited a very special guest to join me this week. It's my friend, the wonderful, the talented, the author, Helene Wecker. Welcome, Helene. Thank you. It is wonderful to be here. I'm delighted to have you. And I will say, as I told you, I think when I invited you on, you were you were at the top of my list for people to have on this year because I didn't realize, I think, that you were watching The Mandalorian until the end of the first season because I think you came into our incomparable slack and were like, hold on, I've got to like talk about how the first season ended. <laughs> I was like, oh, I didn't realize you were watching this. So like, I was very excited to see how excited you were. And I really loved like you talking about because I think you came from at this from a perspective of like not as steeped perhaps in the like lore of more recent Star Wars adaptations, and mm-hmm. so you kind of delved into like a lot of that stuff coming out of season one. Yes, uh, yeah. So I wanted to know from you and like coming out of season one, like where your head was at, what you thought of the show overall in season one, and like how you were excited going into season two. Well. <laughs> I love it's such a funny show because every episode I'm like well at least at least many of the episodes of the first season my first uh response on viewing that would be gosh that was slow and leaned on a lot of tropes and then as soon as I like either rewatched it or thought about it or like was remembering visuals from it I was like oh but that part oh and that part too oh and that part and I think that that, you know, sort of speaks to what it is that they're trying to do here, which is a slower, older feeling show that maybe watching it, you start to feel a little impatient with the pace or with, okay, yes, we've seen this before, but that gets under your skin because of how much it brings in, uh, either from the uh you know from from the entire you know universe of of mm-hmm. Star Wars and everything that they have at their disposal to play with or just the fantastic effects the really cool character moments the and yeah the whole mythology that that not only are they playing into with Star Wars but that Star Wars itself was playing into at the very mm-hmm. beginning um so it is a show that you know, maybe this is just me and and my, you know, sort of goldfish, um, you know, <laughs> attention span here, where I'm sitting there, he has him watching sort of tap in my feet. But then w- rewatching, once I know what happens, I can, I can watch and appreciate, really appreciate what it is that they are doing. Yeah, I agree with you wholeheartedly. I mean, every episode of the show I have watched at least twice mm-hmm. um, because I'll watch it a second time before we do the podcast because I, I know I've missed stuff. And I usually turn the captions on for the second viewing, too, knowing that I've like missed dialogue here and there. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I do find I totally agree with you. It rewards like that second watching when you have kind of the what happens next, like, you know, question out of the way. It does let you really appreciate so many of the the finer details and the attention that they bring to so much of this show. Yes. 
Yeah, and I think you put it right well, too, that it's like it's almost kind of like a microcosm of Star Wars, right? In that whole reuse of tropes and something, you know, it's like a little a little snow globe version of Star Wars where it's like, oh, yeah, we're going to do all the things that the big Star Wars, you know, f- feature films do, but we're doing them on a kind of a smaller scale and with more of a, uh, you know, a, an episodic nature to it. Yeah, I like that description in snow globe. It, it's it, it is a sort of like it's almost like a I wanted to, I want to say cameo, but that that means something mm. different now. It's It's, you know like a like a Fabergé egg like something right. small and incredibly detailed that you really have to spend a while looking at before you understand not just everything that is there but the craftsmanship that went into making it yeah yeah and so uh, i really um I, as I said, I, I think your your excitement too at the end of season one when we were talking about it last year <laughs> was really what what got me in there because I think you were like you didn't I think my understanding was you didn't really know much of the background of like the dark saber which yes! was revealed the end of season one and then you like delved into it hard <laughs> yeah, well and, and I haven't gotten into it that hard part partly because um, circum- life circumstances sort of got in the way sure, between sure. Th- then and now I had this plan that I was going to watch all of um, the uh, all of the Clone Wars. Uh, but then, but then life happened, and and mm-hmm, you know mm-hmm. the larger world sort of stepped in and said, "No, any free time you have is going to go to other things now." Um, <laughs> so I'm sort of where I was, and a part of me sort of wants to stay there now that I've sure. um, now that now that the second season has started, and I'm curious. I, I realized I think after it wasn't until after I had you know that talk with you, and I, I think I was on the 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 season wrap up. Um, podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was like, okay, I seem to be in an interesting position here as far as fandom goes, where I'm pretty much smack in the middle. I've, I've seen, you know, I, I'm aware of the larger universe. I've seen bits of the larger universe. My husband has seen all of Clone. I'm based, I'm the only family member now who hasn't seen <laughs> all of Clone Wars. Um, because my, uh, uh, Kareem, Kareem saw it, the whole thing. And then once Maya got old enough, he really wanted to show her Ahsoka. Um, mm-hmm. so he got her into it and Gavin sort of came along. That's uh, my, um, eight year old and my six year old son, eight year old daughter, six year old son. And so, and, and at, at the time, you know, and so I'm like, you know, walking through the li- past living room every once in a while, like, oh, I guess that's Ahsoka everyone talks about. And, 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 and I just, it, what tends to happen with me and, and like larger universes is I sort of I pick up on things on the internet or what I see over over people's shoulders and so I'm vaguely aware that this stuff is out there but not so you know deep in it that that I um you know so I catch I don't know all the references but I know that Mm -hmm. they are references right so that is it's sort of an interesting position to be in and and as fascinated as I am with the balance that they are trying to strike in making the series between, you know, we have to appeal to the people who have seen, you know, the original trilogy and, you know, maybe a couple of the newer movies and, you know, maybe they went to see the, the, the prequels way back when, you know, that's their, their sort of base audience. And then there's the, I am steeped in lore, you know, sort of, mm-hmm. um, you know, over audience uh you know high elite audience um and i'm i'm fascinated in how they are 
trying to make this something for everyone. Yeah. Um, and so I sort of want to stay here in the middle and see what it is that they, you know, how it is that they do that on sort of a story by story basis or moment by moment. Yeah, that's a hard needle to thread, I think. And, and it's interesting, hard. too. We'll, we'll talk about it a little bit in this week's episode, because I do feel like one of the critiques that often comes out of that steep, more steeped in lore segment is that like maybe there are too many references which is like a thing that i heard a lot people critique solo for too when a, the movie came out hmm. was like oh are they are they gilding the lily right like are they talking about too many things from these movies mm-hmm. and i think there's a there's a debate there as to whether the only people who really notice that are the people who are like super steeped in the lore yeah and and there's kind of an interesting line to walk there so yeah let's let's dive into this week's episode so this is the premiere of season two it's entitled chapter nine the marshal the marshal um the marshal which tells you pretty much i think right from the get-go where we're going here uh-huh um so we open with uh mando and baby yoda um you know i'm just gonna keep going with baby yoda <laughs> he's, he's, he's not the child come he's on the child, come the on, child. Come on. He's baby Yoda. This isn't Doctor uh, Who. They're walking through a uh, kind of urban, like, but somewhat dilapidated city, um, which we don't really get a identification of. It's full of graffiti of stormtroopers and these weird red-eyed creatures that we kind of see in the shadows, which was very creepy. I thought they were like Jawas at first. And I then, did, like, too. Yeah, they were, they were much scarier than Jawas. Yeah, <laughs> eventually, yes. Um, and he has reached this underground ring where he's here to see someone named Gore Koresh. Uh, there are Gamorians fighting in this ring, which to me reminded me a bit of when I, uh, a couple years ago, I went to Mexico City and we went to a, a luchador oh, wow. um, match. And it, it kind of had a, a vibe of that to me. Like, you know, and I just really, it was, it was a fun, exciting vibe with all the people like yelling and, you know, the Gamorians fighting with their bay axes, which was mm-hmm. pretty cool. Their axes, but they were, there was a force field thing going on on that i couldn't quite figure out the 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 mechanics of the fight it's like they were hitting each other but knocking each other back instead of cutting each other and i was like okay that's interesting i think it was an attempt to depict vibro axes which are kind of like a star wars weapon thing because i think Ah. we saw a vibro blade last year briefly okay um which is you know something that like a blade that vibrates really fast and so theoretically cuts through things like not quite lightsaber style but like more like an every every man's lightsaber. Okay, vibro um, axe is a thing vibro-axe. I did not know existed. Okay, I, I know. Uh, <laughs> we meet with our our mob boss, mob boss who has one eye, uh, mm-hmm. and I guess is an alien that may show up in the uh, in the cantina in episode four. Uh-huh. Uh huh. That's what somebody suggested. Uh, voiced by John Leguizamo. <laughs> Which I, I enjoy that they keep getting fun people to do voices for even like little one-off uh-huh. bits or show up in these little roles. But that was fun. The, I, I never would have guessed that that was John Leguizamo. No. And no. I can only, I, I, it makes me wonder, like, how do they go about, do they get these people? Do they call up John Leguizamo one day and say, we'd really like you to play One-Eyed Alien and no one's actually going to see you? Or yeah. does John Leguizamo, like, call them up and say, I don't care how you get me in, I want to be part of this. I, maybe it's a combination, but... I think probably. Yeah. I think it's probably a little of both, because I think there's clearly people that they really want to work with, and that came up uh, definitely in something I read uh, about one of the casting later on in this episode, mm-hmm. but it... um it was it also seems like there are people who they either know or know of as star wars fans and are like oh we got to get so, ah. so to record like a little bit um 
They, we have a confrontation where uh, essentially Gore Koresh wants the Mandalorian's armor, even though he's agreed to uh, provide information about another Mandalorian um, because Mandalorian thinks that if he finds others of his kind, they will help him find the Baby Yoda's people. Uh, that ends up with a unsurprisingly quite a good choreographed fight scene i mm-hmm. thought with some really great moments so we see the use of the whistling birds yep. little missile things again yep uh we have a great comedic moment which i think was sadly was in one of the trailers mm-hmm. where uh the baby yoda looking around and seeing stuff's about to go south closes up <laughs> his little specifically he looks at, he sees the whistling birds light up and he's like oh boy and then uh, it, oh, here he we are clicks again. the thing and, and closes it up but it's that that i appreciated it like the kid's learning <laughs> Yeah, I I thought this was a really wonderfully choreographed sequence, too, because it uses a couple things that I think are... It's not like a super Star Wars-y fight, but I love that the Mandalorian gets an opportunity to show off how savvy he is about combat. Like, there's a scene where one of the the Gamorrean leaps out of the ring, Mm -hmm. and he just steps back and lets him, like, crash through a table, which I thought was funny. And then a scene where somebody punches him in the helmet, and somebody's holding him from behind, so when his head gets knocked back, he, like, clocks them in the face with the helmet, which I also thought was great. (laughs) Like, you guys are... Everyone says they know how good Mandalorians are, but... No one seems to take it to heart. Right. Like, he's he's really pretty formidable and and everyone keeps underestimating him, which is which is amusing. Yeah, and I like how practical he is about his fight too, right? Like he takes a few hits here and there, but like he's always kind of using uh, you know, his situation to his advantage. And mm-hmm. I think that sort of speaks to the the skill of it. Yes. Um so uh Koresh flees um and Basically, the Mando grabs him with his little uh, tow cable thing and hauls him up very Batman style <laughs> on a lamppost uh, and interrogates him and is told that there's a Mandalorian on Tatooine, which surprises him and kind of us. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and that he says, I've spent much time on Tatooine. Yes. And it's like, okay, he can't just be meaning. I mean, it, it's pretty clear he can't just be meaning uh, the, the, the one time we saw him go to Tatooine right. last season because he already knew then how to talk to the the tuscan raiders and yep. it's I, I, i'm just curious now like why was he is it just because so much wretched hiving of scum and villainy that if you're a bounty hunter it's just like oh tatooine again it's it's like right yeah, it's, the, <laughs> it's the most important inconsequential planet in the galaxy yes it's what we've learned <laughs> over the last 40 years it's it's the butt end of nowhere and everyone keeps going there for some reason yeah, for some reason i don't know <laughs> Uh, Mandalorian keeps his promise not to kill the guy, but then shoots out the light and lets yeah. the creatures have at him, which was kind of dark. Which was pretty dark, but as soon as he says, um, I promise you won't die by my hand, it's like, dude, you obviously heard no fairy tales. Whatever culture you come from has no fairy tales, no no elves, no like jinn, no nothing that you make a bad promise with and you have to watch your language. It's like... He, he, really, he really puts the lawyer in Mandalorian. <laughs> <laughs> sorry everybody oh so sorry uh so it's off to tatooine in the town of mos pelgo um we re- reprise our um we have a reprise of uh peli uh played by amy sedaris Ooh, i love uh, her such a fascinating little role uh we learn the mandalorian you know he's come around on droids a little bit mm-hmm. after his uh experience with ig11 last season presumably he lets them fix the ship even though they're terrible at it yep i i, uh, I liked seeing that i like that he's like yeah i might as well lo- let them look at it and that's like our cue that that he is you know he's revised his opinion and it's, it's like that was his the more 
annoying character trait of his in the first season. And I, I understand that it was, you know, his thing that he had to get over and blah, blah, blah. But droids have been so personified in uh, in Star Wars that it can't come off as anything other than just like rank bigotry. Yeah, so right. I was pretty I'm I'm if this is signaling like a move away from that, then I'm very glad. Yeah, I feel like that, you know, IG-11 sacrificing himself at the end of last season kind of puts a nice little bow on that yeah. for for Mando. And so I, I like I agree with you. I think it's nice to move on from that. And I think that's probably I would not be surprised if that's kind of the last we see of it. Yeah, which is great. Yep. Um, Pelly uh, helps him locate Mos Pelgo, which although she says it's not there anymore because it was basically <laughs> wiped out. Uh, and we get a little hint that post um, post fall of the Empire, things aren't great on Tatooine because she mentions she doesn't even leave the city walls anymore yeah um we also have another one of our cameos uh r5 d4 famously last seen <laughs> blowing up at a jawa sandcrawler is apparently fine and working in the spaceport so good for it oh i had seen uh, that is a that's the sort of thing where it's like oh we've seen one of those before like i knew that i'd seen that in the um in in the original trilogy but i didn't realize it was the exact one so are there only I mean, like yeah, six uh, droids on Tatooine? Yeah, so that's that's where we kind of get into the question of references and are there too many? I think you could easily <laughs> look over that and be like, yeah, it doesn't have to be the same one. Yeah. You know, it could just be a similar looking unit. I know some people online have claimed it's the exact same one. <sighs> I did not look closely enough to verify that, but mm-hmm. I, you know, I'm I'm not, I kind of let that just wash over me. <laughs> Um, so, uh, the Mando told he can't use his ship for some reason. They'll hear him coming, I guess. Uh, he takes yeah. his, the, uh, Peli speeder bike and we get a nice already gift moment of baby Yoda's ears flapping in yeah. the wind. It's, it's um, just so cute. He's just happy. So adorable. It is. It's great. I really enjoy that. You know, <laughs> we've, we've spent more time letting, he's a little less, not protective, but like a little more willing to let baby Yoda kind of be exposed to things yeah. right like taking him to the boxing match you know early on he says you know wherever he goes i go essentially which is interesting because i also think that that stated creed as it were it gives a lot more agency to baby yoda it's not mm-hmm. where i go he goes because i'm dragging i'm literally carrying him yeah it's where he goes i go which and, i thought was interesting and he might especially after a couple of the last episodes he he may be sort of uh he's come to decide that the baby the baby Yoda can take care of himself that this is not like right. a fragile little creature he's you know he he can deflect fire with the force or you know whatever it is he thinks the the baby Yoda can do so he's sort of willing to let let the kid ride shotgun and and maybe you know maybe not be in the direct line of fire but near the line of fire right exactly um we also get our here our first return to the Tuscan Raiders um where uh the uh the mandalorian is sort of consulting with them at one point and i mm-hmm. think a really fascinating choice that i loved last season and i like that we get a chance to delve into it much more here which is the the communication with the tuscan raiders uh-huh um who who use not exclusively sign language but it is a big component of the way that they communicate and i did see a note online that they you know hired a, a legitimate like asl speaker um to do a lot of the the work on the and i think play even um the lead sort of sand people and that this was suggested i think that someone suggested by a a hearing member of the staff who knew asl which i think is great i love that attention to it it really brings a lot of richness to that to them as people i i thought that was pretty awesome and it makes sense too where it's like Mm -hmm. if you have to communicate over distances you're in the desert 
and you, you know, maybe you've got a sight line, but you can't really hear, or you don't want to alert someone, it's like, that would sort of naturally evolve, that you've got, you know, hand signals that go with whatever it is that you're saying. And I, I, I love that they are adding this depth um, to to the is it sand people or tuscan raiders or is it like one's preferred and knots one one's not or... i don't know they're both kind of pejorative is the thing yeah, which is like yeah. tricky because it's like sand people does not sound exactly it's clearly not what they call themselves yeah and but, but tuscan raiders, raiders is... seems to cent- center it around the idea of them being like like people who raid thievery things. yeah yeah well, i'll just call them yeah. tuscans then yeah, yeah. And so I think what's interesting, too, like in part of perhaps the affinity between the Mandalorian and the the Tuscans are like the fact that they all wear helmets, right? Mm-hmm. Like that there's I think that's part of it, like because to your point about the long distances, I think that's a, a excellent point of why that evolved. But also the fact that they wear these coverings, mm-hmm. which probably make certain aspects of communication more difficult. And yeah. So perhaps like a gesture based system uh, language evolved around that as well because of the harsh elements and all that. Yeah. Um, so he finds a way to Mos Pelgo, which we go, at which point we are full on Western where the <laughs> hero rides into town and everybody kind of gives him the side eye and is like retreating into their shops or whatever. Yeah. It feels Staring very Western. Oh yeah. Um, and they, they've turned his spurs up to 11, by the way, mm-hmm, when, once mm-hmm. he gets off the bike, it's just, there's some clinking. Yeah. Ching. Uh, and get out, he, he does, as he uh, shows up at a saloon where there is a Weequay bartender. And uh, Baby Yoda, I had a big question about how Baby Yoda gets out of the uh, saddlebags. Because <laughs> he yeah. leaves him behind, and then he Baby does. Yoda peeks into the door. And I was like, can he levitate himself? I guess he just climbs. But <laughs> I thought it was interesting he just left him there. Like, you know, you can find your own way in. Yeah, that that was my, I'm like, okay, this is not the best parenting. Sort of going, at, at, you know, on a thread that we started last season is like okay he's just leaving him there there's no like okay he's a, but again i guess he assumes the kid can take care of himself he can get out if yeah. he wants to he can like wander into the saloon and 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 sit in a spittoon if he wants to That's right. you're 50 kind of years okay old you're it. an adult <laughs> uh a, the mandalorian inquires from the bartender if anybody else like him has been there and he says oh you mean the marshal and we uh immediately meet Cobb Vanth, the yep. marshal, uh, who shows up in the doorway in his m- very familiar-looking Mandalorian armor. Yes. And I love everything about this this introduction. I think it's great. It's, uh, it, they, they have to, did, you, you mentioned before that you'd read something, did, did they think of Timothy Oliphant, like, for the part? I don't know about that. I, although, so Cobb Vanth is a character who was shows up at first in Chuck Wendig's Star Wars novels, which take place in kind of a similar time period ah, post Return of the Jedi. Okay. Uh, and as a character he, I believe, created for this and maybe has been used in other uh, media since. Uh-huh. Um, and so the whole concept of this character as displayed here, my understanding is, is very consistent with his story. Uh, you know, some of this backstory is doled out in the books as well. Um, but I have to imagine if you have a character like this who is, you know, the, sh- the, sheriff the sheriff of the town, especially yeah. when you use the the word marshal. Of course, Timothy Oliphant from both Deadwood and I think more relatedly justified, yes. basically playing Space Raylan Givens here. There is 
a hundred percent. If you incidentally, if you have not watched Justified, audience, seek it out. It's a fabulous television show. It, yeah, the I I was a Deadwood watcher in which. He he's he's a more dour character in, yes, in Deadwood exactly. than, than he is in, in Justified. I wasn't a, a huge Justified watcher, although it does have the distinction of of. And this is a tangent, but it was the um, the show that was playing when I went into labor with my daughter. Uh, so I will always remember that that was what was on the TV when my water broke, and I went, "Oh no!" Or, oh, I think I actually swore or something. And Kareem, who's watching, is like, "Oh yeah, did you just realize that Givens is is like impersonating?" this other guy i'm like no no it wasn't justified at all (laughs) (laughs) uh well if you were a deadwood watcher then so you'll be interested to know that the the actor who plays the weak way bartender is w earl brown who also played um i think dan in um in deadwood dan doherty who is the the bartender who works at al's yes and is al's right hand man yes oh no i have to watch it a third time now oh (laughs) But I saw some joke. He had a really great thread online talking about his experience getting cast where he had played years ago something that required prosthetic work and he had sworn off it. And like his agent came to him and be like, all right, I've got an offer, but it's prosthetics. He's like, no, I don't want to do prosthetics. He's like, but it's pretty. No, I don't want to do it. It's Star Wars. And he's like, oh, oh, hell yeah. <laughs> and then he went through his like history of like seeing Star Wars in the theater when he was a kid and how much he loved it and all that. And I'm like, it, it was a charming Twitter thread, Aww. so highly recommended. And, it's, and he was talking about he and Tim like redoing scenes from Deadwood as a joke, like in there when they were like setting up and stuff like that. Uh, and I thought that that was great. But um, yeah, so we have Tim Oliphant uh, takes off his uh, helmet in an immediate like th- w- again a great moment. The Mandalorian gets way more dialogue this even in this episode, I think, than a lot of the first season episodes. Uh-huh. But he still conveys so much through body language. So the scene where he's kind of cautious, right, around the marshal. The Mm -hmm. marshal comes in and grabs a couple drinks and says, like, you know, come have a drink with me. And he's already... There's a moment when he says, come have a drink with me, that you can see he gets a little uncomfortable. Yeah, because assume it's like, like, well, you're not actually a Mandalorian then, if that's what you're asking me to do. And it's like he's trying to figure out what what the heck is going on here. And then he takes off the helmet and you can see him freeze. Yes. And... That is a great bit of body uh, body language acting. I just I thought that was fantastic, and it immediately since so, so that the audience, if you didn't pick up on that cue, immediately goes into the marshal saying, "I've never met a real yes. Mandalorian before." Yes, that was smart. Uh, I I really appreciated the writing in this scene. It was on the one hand they're playing on so many of the Western tropes, and on the other mm-hmm. you've got this entirely separate. Uh, mythology that is being uh, sort of added in, where it, it, it where it's all revolving around the armor, and mm-hmm. it's it just it was done so well. And of course, Timothy Oliphant is like he he's just charming the pants off so everything in in the room. It's he's just be. I can only imagine they came in. He came in and they said, "Just just be yourself." <laughs> just could you turn Raylan, but just, up to eleven? Really? Um, yes. Uh, I and I like that so much of it is. It's kind of hard to get an idea of Vanth and see exactly how confident he is, right? Like he knows the mm-hmm. armor has made a big deal to him, and he talks about how you know I suppose you're gonna you're you're not happy to see me wearing the armor, mm-hmm. and we're gonna have to essentially like throw down here. Yeah. And what's hard for him me to tell is like I'm not sure if he believes he can win this fight. Yeah. Like I think there's a part of him that says like. I'm going to I'm going to give it my best go because my job is to be here and protect this town but I don't think I'm going to walk out of here. Yeah. Like he seems to me to be a little bit 
uh, you know, maybe realizing his number is up. Well, and he realizes what he has, and he 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 knows that it's not just the armor itself that has like allowed him to defend this town, but it's the the story and the legends behind the armor that make mm-hmm. everyone so afraid of him when he's wearing it. So he and he respects that, and that that was something I really liked about this character was that he wasn't playing dumb or just plain ignorant of what mm-hmm. it is that the armor means to a true Mandalorian. He's, right. he knows as soon as he steps into that cafe, that, that cafe, that, uh, that bar, what, what, what he's going up against. Right. Yeah. And so he says he's got the armor. He bought it off some Jawas, you know, but he knows, he knows a bit about Mandalorians and after they sort of square off, uh, we get this nice little, you know, Western yep. Western face-off moment. With, and with then the fingers are, vibrating yeah, next to the blaster, the even, which is fantastic. Oh, so and Yo- Baby Yoda being like, I don't really know what's going on here, but I can tell it's not going to be good. <laughs> uh, and they are saved by rumbling as a uh, mysterious <laughs> sand creature basically wends its way very considerately, I thought, right through Main yes, Street. Yes, yes. Right up the street, which is nice. Respects yep. traffic. <laughs> probably even go in the right way exactly i like though there are a couple things the evaporator starts sinking as it comes closer and then there's the bit with the windmill yes that starts spinning up again very very western um and it eats a uh bantha plunges out of the sand and eats a uh a giant bantha yep um at which point the marshal says maybe there's another alternative here help me kill this thing and i'll give you the armor yep so they they ride their way out, and we get uh, during their uh, ride out to find the uh, the great dragon where it lives. Uh, we get the flashback from Vanth about how he came to have the armor and about what happened uh, after the fall of the second Death Star. Uh, which uh, I like. Uh, one one question I had was, how do they have a conversation on the earbuds? Yeah. Because when they're moving, it seems really fast, and then it cuts to them talking. You're like, oh, we're just like driving in a car together. Yeah. Like, no, I don't think that's how that works. Yeah. Um, I was of two minds about the uh, the backstory about mm-hmm. the, the the flashback. It seemed a little, I don't know. It, it, I, it wouldn't have been nearly as good to just hear him talking. You, you'd want to see what's going on, but that right. it was. I and mean, I like the touch that you know, as soon, basically the, the the Death Star had barely even blown up when the miners like seized their opportunity and came to town and and enslaved everyone. But then he's like he's running out of the the bar and he like just manages to grab this um what what are those containers called there's like a cantono cantono okay um that that has it has like you know a fortune in it and and he and then he's like dragging this thing through the desert and apparently didn't even know what he had until the jaw was found him and and like okay this is a little pat it's a little little, yeah a little pat a little fast a little convenient um but he looks good doing it, so you know I'll 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 give him that. Well, give him a pass, give him a cast. Yep. I um the things I like in there. I first of all I enjoyed the comment that his blaster fire over Moss Eisley, which made it basically I feel like was a tip of the hat to the end of the special editions oh. of Return of the Jedi with all the celebrating. <laughs> and I was like, okay, well I guess we're we're embracing that. Yeah. Um, 
And I like, so I'm interested in the portrayal of the, the Mandalorian armor. So, you know, we can say, I think with a relative degree of certainty that this is Boba Fett's armor. Mm-hmm. It certainly looks exactly like it. There are a few things I really enjoy about the way they portray it. One, it is hella more dinged up than Mando's armor, right? Yes. It has seen, it's been through the wars, literally. It, it's been, it's possibly been through a sarlacc which indeed yeah which, we'll, ta- we'll when, talk about that a little later but yeah, yeah definitely um and uh the other thing was that it it doesn't quite fit vanth yes like like it looks like you you cut back and forth between the two of them and i kept leaning over to my wife at the time and saying like he looks like a kid playing dress up in a costume right like well, and it, it doesn't oh, sorry go on no i was just saying he's very he's a tall lanky guy And he doesn't really, like, he's not super broad in the shoulder. And so it doesn't quite fit him right. But I kind of like that because it conveys this whole idea that he is literally, like, using somebody else's uh, image to, to, as, like, an element of protecting the people in his town. Like, he's projecting this image, but it doesn't quite fit him right. Well, what it looked like to me was sort of, like, the male version of of the metal bikini armor, like a Barbarella (laughs) sort of thing. Because it's... And, and I'm this is me being too way too literal, but I'm looking at it and like, okay, so my first thought is gut shot. That's he, 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 oh, he's yeah. got like a foot, a clear foot of of like stomach between the bottom of the armor and like where his holster is, and and I'm like, why would anyone aim for anything that's like protected by the by the armor? But mm-hmm, I mean, he mm-hmm. it, it looks. It looks interesting. I think, like like you said, it, it it does like play up the fact that this is something he is putting on over himself right. in order to to like gain the authority. And in that sense, the armor is is just as much a you know a a borrowed idea as it is actual armor. Um, yeah. But he God, he's got to be a tall dude. Like, yeah, I think so. Yeah, he's got to be well over six feet. I mean, not that Pedro Pascal is particularly it's, short exactly, either. Exactly, but so, the two yeah. of these, he's almost like a full head taller than than Pedro right. Pascal. And I'm like, dude, that's wow. Uh, so we encounter the uh, the after the flashback the uh, what I guess are essentially the dogs of the Sand People. I forget what the <laughs> the team is for them, but I gather they appear briefly in um, Attack of the Clones when Anakin goes on his murder spree. Uh huh. Um, and Vanth is ready to uh, shoot them up when the Mandalorian you know demonstrates again that he is you know got some knowledge of this culture and manages to sort of uh, you know befriend them. Uh, throw them the proverbial stake yep. and uh, basically get them an invite to the campfire uh, with the Tuscans, uh, whereby we learn that they also want to kill the the crate dragon. Um, and so they are trying to set up an uneasy truce here. And it doesn't go particularly well. Vanth is like, you know, a little resentful, obviously, because they've killed some people in his village. And of course, the raiders accuse them of the people of stealing their water and all of this. And the Mandalorian has to silence this with a flamethrower at one point. <laughs> like you do. Um, and uh, there's a bit where he's Vanth has offered like a, a gourd kind of full mm-hmm. of some drink. And he refuses to drink it because he thinks it doesn't smell good. <laughs> uh, very, again, very Timothy Olvan moment. It's like, it stinks. You know? Yeah, like, yeah that, that's the, the worst stage whisper ever. Yeah. My my favorite detail from this scene was the um uh, that the backside of the gaffy sticks which the sand people use is used to clean the banthas teeth. Yes. Yes. I'm like you skipped over the Tuscan brushing his banthas teeth. I love it's that. The cutest it was thing great. ever. It's so it's, good. it's like just the again, the little details that sort of fill in a culture. 
The yep. one, I, this was where I started to feel like leaning on the Western tropes starts to bring in some of the baggage yeah. that yep. that you're, it's like, okay, and people didn't deal with that baggage back then, but we know better now, right? And sure. where it's, you've got your your indigenous people and your colonizers and you are looking at okay you've stolen our water well you came to our village well you know you stole our water and and these two sides are being presented as equals who have to work together when very clearly the the, the situation is pretty different and yeah. i wish that they had Oh, Lord, I don't know what I wish. It's like, on the one hand, if you're going to touch that fire, you're going to have to deal with it. And on the other, they have locked themselves into a format where the format dictates that you don't. And that isn't an excuse, but it also makes for something very different than, you know, the two sides coming together to solve a common problem uh you know template that they are building the episode on top of um so i do wish that there had been a little a little more if not a lot more at least a little more of a you know discussion of who you know what rights have been stolen from whom and how have the 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 sand people been affected by um by the the, the just the existence the pure existence of of Mos Pelgo um but yeah it's not what we get yeah i i agree with you i think it's it's a got it got to be a little bit sticky i was thinking about this as i watched that especially the scene with the gourd which i felt like was kind of an attempt to do a corollary to some things that might be traditions in other indigenous cultures but also then just feels like a kind of a a like pale simulacrum like kind of like a thing that they're brushing over like we don't really get the significance of it and it feels a little bit more like window dressing and Mm -hmm. i think it's very much a case of feeling a little bit like they want to have their cake and eat it too, right? Yeah. Like they want to be a Western, but they don't necessarily want to deal with the baggage that happens if this was a Western set in our world. Yeah. And I think they not, it's tricky. I think they don't quite thread that needle here. I think that they, as you said, I think they, they probably needed to find a way to acknowledge a little bit more of the, the source, like the where we're getting this source material and mm-hmm. how that misrepresented so many of these conflicts yep. over the life of the, that genre and over our history. Um, you can't just sort of hand wave and be like, well, it's like that, but it's a different world. So you don't have to think about any of the things that might come with yeah. <laughs> like it in our world. And I don't think they do that quite definitely enough. I, I do like that they bring a lot more, uh, you know, character to these, this, this culture and this people. But I think they also, there's a little bit too much self-satisfection of like, well, we nailed it, right? Yeah, like, yeah. Walk away. <laughs> we acknowledge the problem. There it is. Yep, exactly, exactly. So, I mean, I would as curious, like the things I started thinking about is like, well, are there places on this, on Tatooine where, you know, Tuscans live side by side with people and like get along? Like, mm-hmm. are there other places where, you know, there's the, you know, a little bit more uh, of the culture of the Tuscans that is the like dominant culture rather than being the culture that shoved to the fringe? Like how else... Like, or is it just the same sort of note that we hit all the time where it's like, oh, they're just people who raid humans because the yeah. humans stole their stuff. I don't know. Yeah. It, but it feels reductive. 
and okay i'm jumping ahead a little but there's there's this bit where the once they do get to the um the cave and they're talking about how the uh, the, the mandalorian sort of relaying how the tuscans have been uh studying the crate dragon and figuring out mm-hmm. that if they feed it it will sleep and you know they just feed it the occasional bantha every once in a while and that sort of you know it's it's like a soporific and it, it I, when i saw it the second time i was like oh so that means that the ban the 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 tuscans have been you know a side effect of that is that they've been protecting uh mas pelgo to some extent mm. like mm-hmm. yeah it's coming and taking the uh occasional bantha but it hasn't like ripped apart the whole town and killed yeah. everyone, and that's you know could be pretty much the the Tuscans doing. So it's just some acknowledgement of that maybe would and you know and just sort of opening the the townspeople's eyes to you know yeah you stole our water at, and and we've been saving your lives you know nonetheless. Yeah. I think that just that might have been like the touch that I was looking for. Gotcha. Yeah, I agree. Um, so we set off to the uh, the crate dragon cave. The banthas, of course, ride single files to hide their numbers. Um, oh, some the, of that overhead shot was just yeah, gorgeous. They, really gorgeous, like work this episode. I know you know so much has been written about uh, the volume, which is essentially this the digital sets on which they shoot these things, which are these big like curved LED uh, LCD screens on which they actually project like the footage Mm -hmm. to get the accurate light reflections and stuff but a lot of this clearly was stuff that was composited into like drone and location shots as well uh and it's i think it looks pretty great for the most part i mean there are there are some places every once in a while where maybe you see the seams a little bit but i i feel like i i get immersed enough in the story that it doesn't really bother me Mm -hmm. um so uh, we see the uh, the crate dragon. The crate dragon comes out of its lair. It instead of eating the bantha that they post outside for it, it eats the uh, the tuscan. Um, <laughs> and everyone which is sort of goes, "Huh? Yeah, well, it's going to happen. Uh, <laughs> they might be open to some fresh ideas." Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, um, and we get a nice little circle wipe too at one point, which feels like a very Star Warsy original like cut. Yep. Um, and then a fun scene where they uh, the Tuscans are laying out the the diorama <laughs> using the little bones and the little rocks, and they're and arguing whether it's to scale, whether it's scale or not. <laughs> and uh, again, Timothy Oliphant does a nice job of like having the like that's that's not to scale, yeah. right? Like, right. come on. Yeah. Uh, and they decide they must convince the town to join the fight because they don't have enough people to take it down on their own. Uh, we have a little bit of a meeting, which is again feels very Western. Where like we gotta we gotta team up and defend the town. I do love the one bit where like Vanth says, uh, you know, God forbid, like they come after the school or something, <laughs> which to me felt very like a maybe like a like a Deadwood tilt of the hat, yeah. tip of the hat or something. Where his because he was his wife is the school teacher, I think, in Deadwood. I want to say his his flame. I think. Oh, he's right. his, his, oh no! His, wait, yeah. was it his? Was it? No, no. I think his wife is the teacher. Yeah, right, she? right. Yes, his wife is the teacher, and, and the the yeah. The oh god, it's been years since I saw. Dead I know. Boy. I yeah. Same. But but yeah. I liked that because it felt very western. Also, despite the fact that I don't remember seeing any children. Yeah, anywhere. I think there was one at one point, like a, yeah. a, 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 when the the crate comes through, the woman's like bringing her her like preteen son right. into the yeah. Yeah, but it's like ooh, raising kids out there. That's scary. That seems like a bad idea. Uh, yeah, they can just use Zoom. I'm sure it's fine. Um, <laughs> so the Dis- deal is distance that, learning to Moss Eisley. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. Uh, the deal is if they leave the uh, the Tuscans, the carcass, and the Icker, they'll you know basically 
the peace will hold unless the 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 humans break it which they are oh. getting off easy come yeah, on yeah no kidding no kidding um i re- also again playing into some of the i think again maybe leveraging a little too many of the tropes yeah. but you know the indigenous people using the uh the carcass and like Anyways, yeah, it's like, I, we, I think, all we want is the natural, the thing, the spoils. It's like, no, this is when you negotiate water rights, like a smart exactly, person. Come on. Exactly. Uh, so the the Tuscans come into town. I thought they had uh, ballistas mounted on the banthas, which I was very excited about for a while, because that seemed really cool. Um, I wanted to and, ride a bantha. That actually looked kind of fun. It did look fun. <laughs> they're so cute. They are. Um, they're like these giant, they're, they're like these giant fluffy dogs. I like them with horns. <laughs> Uh, things are a little uneasy as they load up all their mining explosives. There's a brief, attempt, almost an accident, and uh, Vanth tries to reassure the Mando, it's going to be great. Uh, <laughs> and then we get to the uh, the third in act, which is the dealing with the, the dragon. Uh, their plan is to bury a bunch of charges and get at the belly, which is the only vulnerable spot. But in order to do that, they must lure it out of the cave. Um, I One thing I loved about this, so a crate dragon is... Um, referenced a little bit in the original Star Wars movie. We see a skeleton that 3PO is next to when he's out in the desert uh, looking for the Sandcrawler, which is supposedly a Krayt Dragon skeleton. And then when Obi-Wan frightens away the Tusken Raiders uh, when meeting Luke, the call he does is said to be the call of a Krayt Dragon. And you can hear that echoed here. Like, Mm -hmm. they clearly used part of that or used that as inspiration for the sound of the crate dragon, which I really enjoyed. Uh, While also making Obi-Wan's version seem like a very, like, budget version that an ordinary person could do if you were trying to scare people away. Yeah. So, a nice bit of sound engineering. And there was... You, you correct me if I'm wrong. When um, they first get to the the, the Tuscan Raiders that they're that um, Vance and, and the Mandalorian are meeting up with, when, once the the once he's like tamed the puppies and and then the the Tuscans come out, isn't the um, there's a music cue that mm. sounded? I think it, it seemed like I remembered it from when Luke meets Obi Wan in the desert when he like wakes up and and they have the uh you know i haven't heard that name in a long time conversation i'm pretty sure that that's what that was from but i only caught it on the second there viewing. is a cue that is in there that is very similar to one from season one of the mandalorian uh-huh. and i can't quite place in my head it might even be from the tatooine episode and i think it may have some overtones of the of the uh, obi-wan scene but it, okay. i don't think it's directly close and i'm okay. I, i'll say as my side note i'm very disappointed that it doesn't seem like they are releasing weekly soundtracks oh man i have not found the one for chapter nine yet and i've only seen suggestions from some interviews that that will the soundtrack will be released quote sometime in november um and one of the things i loved the most last year was getting the soundtrack every week because it, uh. it felt like you got like a solid amount of music whereas a lot of times season-long soundtracks are like oh we'll give you like half an hour 45 minutes of music from a you know six hour season or something like that and huh. it's like well there's clearly so much more music so i like <laughs> i like the weekly releases because i would listen to them constantly too oh uh, well, i'd be very sad I, if they don't do that i i didn't um down discover the the, the soundtracks until after i think like toward the end or after the end of the season and so i just like downloaded them all in one whack and then whist- listened to nothing else for six uh, months or so and they completely screwed up all of my apple music recommendations and but it was <laughs> Yeah, the better though. Yeah, oh yeah, and I. <laughs> for the better. <laughs> eh, it's a lot of anime music now, but they um, 
uh, yeah, I just I just sing along, like to the point where the rest of my family shushes me. Like I just sing oh, yeah. along to the as, I definitely as the do episode's that. going on. Yep. I definitely do that. Um, so we have our fight with the dragon. It doesn't go entirely smoothly at first, but it's kind of predictable, right? Like we know that it's not quite going to work as we expected. I thought the moments of surprise for me, um, the 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 one that like actually got me was the the one where they're running away and the it, it opens its mouth and like spits like acid. Is at it, them. Is what, it acid? or bile or something? Yeah. It just shocked the heck out of me. I was like, oh no, that seems really bad. <laughs> It, it was. It looked severely gross, and Caustic I wasn't sure. Even, yeah. I wanted a little more of an intimation of what it was doing. I mean, if it's if this is like an aliens, you know, acid spewing thing, then mm-hmm. we need to see a little smoke. I mean, maybe it's just like right. coating them in you know Nickelodeon slime, and it's just right. yeah, more of exactly. a disgusting thing than anything else. But um, later on, when well, anyway, but it's. It, just I, I did want to know like okay what's the effect here yeah we could seen like a little bit of like pitting on them or something yeah you know, like acid burn yeah i agree it did need a little bit more of like what is the consequence of this yeah it's not just gross it's actually super caustic or yeah. something like that but yeah. it seemed it was startling and and i thought viscerally effective yeah <laughs> of the way it looks yeah it's gross um <laughs> so they try to blow it up it doesn't work uh, both Vanth and the Mandalorian are pretty sure it's not dead, and of yeah. course it isn't. It pops out of the mountain and sprays acid at them for a while. Which was just uh, weird. Like, suddenly yeah, it's just weird. popping out the top of the mountain. I'm like, what? How did it's it get up there? It was just... Very terrifying. Yeah. Um, and they mentioned earlier that it's an abandoned Sarlacc pit, and uh, there's a moment where they're like, there is no such thing as an abandoned Sarlacc pit. There is if you eat the Sarlacc. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> oh. attempting to give you a size of scale, I guess. Yeah. Um, so the Mando and Vanth fly up with the jetpacks. They try shooting it a bunch. That doesn't really work. They fly back down. It pops out of, like, from behind them now. Like, we're getting into, like, Tremors territory now. Yes. Um, and Vanth shoots it in the eye with the missile to just, to get its attention and make it charge the Mando, who has seen a Bantha full of explosives. (laughs) Uh, and the, uh, Mando basically tells Vanth, like, all right, take care of the child, and then in a Han Solo moment, smacks the jetpack on the back and makes uh, Vanth fly out of the way as he gets swallowed up uh, by the dragon. And then we have our brief, like, moment of the, you know, calm before, like, everyone's sort of quiet and still. And then it, fly, you know, it, mm. it bursts out of the ground. The Mando flies out, having electrocuted it with his uh, rifle thing, which mm-hmm. is a thing I think we haven't seen since, like, early season one. And then blows it up from the inside <laughs> out, which is a... A pretty good scene. That was a good-looking explosion. It, it was. It looked correct. It was like the way that first it would like first you got the shock wave and then you've got the the thing exploding. It was it was very well done. I, I liked it a lot, and I liked. Um, yeah, it's a good exit for him. The um, I actually had an interesting thought about this, which we'll come back to in a second. But uh, about the uh, the armor, he lands and it's all like dripping with all the bile yep. and stuff like that. Um, so they the Tuscans harvest the dragon's flesh, and uh, Vanth hands over the armor, except telling <laughs> telling Mandalorian to make sure to be clear to the Mandalorians that he didn't break it. Yeah. Uh, which it seemed both a reference to the Mando hitting the jetpack and the uh, the <laughs> everything that it went through with Boba Fett. <laughs> Um, I, I do like the very visible ding it has in the helmet. From yes. w- was that was that an actual shot from uh, Return of the Jedi? Was that? It's, 
it's definitely dinged up in Jedi. Hmm. I don't remember if there's an actual shot that causes it, huh. but it's definitely super dinged up even yeah. at that point. Th- this thing has has seen some some action. It's seen some action, yeah. The um the Tuscans find a pearl in the dragon, which is apparently a tip of the hat to a, um, both some old video game stuff and some other Star Wars lore from years past. Really? Okay, yeah, I thought little... it was another egg reference. I thought it yes, was. Yes, I thought I, there's a similarity to it, but I think it's supposedly supposedly this this a crate dragon pearl is a thing. Uh, okay. And it... then we get a. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, please. no. Just the, the the Jawas with their egg was so hilarious. I'm like, yes. Is everyone after eggs on Tatooine? <laughs> it's just it's you... just the only thing that that's worth anything is something's egg. Yeah, well, they give they give the Mando a big chunk of meat too, yeah. and my wife was like, "That's going to go bad by the time he gets <laughs> totally. back." Totally, like, yeah. there's no way he can eat all of that before it goes a lot, bad. A lot of crate dragon steak, um, and then we get the uh, the aspect ratio change. It moves into letterbox, like kind of the letterbox uh, bars slowly like move down, and we get this sort of widescreen look as he drives off into the twin sunset. At which point, we see a mysterious stranger who seems to be wearing. Uh, you know the the weapons of a sand person, but is not a sand person, and it has some scars with him. And as he turns to the camera, and I uh, apologize in advance for spoiling this for anybody who doesn't know, it's the actor Tamura Morrison who played Jango Fett and all of the clones in the prequels. Yeah, uh, with the implication that this is Boba Fett. Yeah, which I did not get um, until I saw. The the credits, yes, and the name uh, popped up, and I was like, I recognize that name. And then I had to go look at, it. you know, I went to the internet, and of course, everyone's blaring, "Oh my god, it's Boba Fett, come back!" <laughs> and I was like, "Oh yeah, that was the guy in the prequels, wasn't it?" It's been like so many years since I saw the prequels. Yeah. I have sadly rewatched them. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's you sort of have to i'm assuming it's at some point if you're like going that you know deep into with the clone wars and rebels and you know making where do things line up and at some point you gotta go watch those prequels it's it's like it's like the 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 penance that you do in order to be part of the uh part part of the whole thing it's the the completionist part yeah it really gets me it's funny i had the same exact experience i saw the guy turn towards the camera i was like god it looks really familiar but it wasn't until i think because a, a, it's been, you know, 20 years since yeah. he was on film yeah. playing this character. He looks a little different. He's got a shaved head now. Um, and I'm also so closely associate the clones with their animated uh, counterparts uh. who are voiced by a different actor. Um, but as soon as I saw his name in the credits, I was like, oh, that's who that was. And my wife got very angry at me saying I had spoiled something. And I was like, I just read a name. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I did know he had been cast. That that Both that and Timothy Oliphant were rumored uh, ahead of time. I had heard that, you know, over the summer or so, but uh, that is a, it was still an, I'd forgotten about it by the time that even the armor had showed up, right? Like the Mm. whole thing with the armor feels a little bit like a head fake to make you think that he is dead, right? Right. Like, oh, we dragged the armor out after the Sarlacc finished eating the guy. Yeah. But I think to me, what was interesting was seeing the scene where the Mandalorian lands after having been in the Krayt Dragon's stomach and you see all the acid sort of coursing its way or whatever down it. And you think, Uh well, if he could survive that... Maybe oh, Boba Fett yeah. could be survived being in the Sarlacc, and like maybe that's kind of the uh, the tee up there. Oh, interesting! That it was the armor that protected him right. while he was in the stomach. Ah. Yeah. 
now there are there is like lore so again from the old the old canon that was sort of invalidated when uh disney bought lucasfilm there were stories about fett surviving and crawling out of the sarlacc pit but all that stuff until it is shown basically in something canonical now it's all considered to be you know it's a haze of possibility but not right it's, it's unconfirmed rumor huh and yeah, because that was my immediate thought was like, well, I I don't know what happened. You know, I'm surely in all the eight zillion novels that have been released since Return of the Jedi, there must be something about uh, Boba right, Fett. You can't just let him die. Yeah, yeah. You, you got you got to uh, mind that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I mean, I think it had been left sort of dormant until now, but it seems like you know certainly. There is the alternative that he could be playing one of the former clones, certainly, since uh, Boba Fett eh, is, is also one of the no, clones, but no, come it seems on. unlikely. That's, it seems unlikely. No, if you're going to bring him back, he's got to be the real thing, or else it's like, no, you're you're just messing with us now. And then there's the debate that one of the sort of lingering plot questions left from the first season is at the end of the last episode on Tatooine, when they face off against Fennec Shand, uh, played by <gasps> Ming-Na Wen, oh. somebody comes up to her corpse at the end. And is wearing spurs, which at that time mm. set a lot of people thinking maybe it's Boba Fett because he does wear spurs on his armor. See, and after um, Moff, what's his face? Gideon. Gideon. Yeah. Moff Gideon. I assumed that that had been Moff Gideon, mm-hmm. like recruiting her, although I guess he would have had a reason to be on Tatooine. But okay. Okay. So if that's. Oh, but, so but what that means is an open question, yeah. right? Like it's it's like they're they're developing a league of of villains or something. Yeah, huh. possibly. Well, so here's uh, let's let's a couple of sort of overall thematic things I wanted to ask you about. Like you know, we talked a little bit at the beginning about references and about sort of you know again taking that middle path between how do we get stuff in there that will you know surprise and delight fans of the franchise, but not either overwhelm people who don't know about it. Or even get to the point of feeling like maybe too much fan service, as it's sometimes referred to. How did you feel about sort of that overall level of, you know, tips of the hat or Easter eggs or what have you? Like, is this delving too much into references to previous stuff or is it just enough or? Um, you know, I think the problems come when you are expecting an audience reaction instead of just you know having it be an easter egg um and if even you is sort of are are like it takes you a bit to realize oh wait no that must be you know that's possibly boba fett then then that says to me they had better not be relying on us to know that mm-hmm. um that there there's got to be either more of a build-up or everyone else has to be just as surprised as, as we are that that's Boba Fett. Um, I do like... Uh, I like that we actually saw Womp Rats. Have we seen romp, Womp Rats before? Oh, I'm not sure, actually, we did see Womp Rats. That was a... People were talking about the little creatures yeah. that run around. Are so those... I don't think they're called... I think they're referred to as scurriers, and they do show up in the special edition, what? I want to say. So those but aren't Womp Rats? Well, Womp Rats are two meters. Oh, of course and, they which are. Is they're much not bigger. much larger much than larger. two meters. Yeah. Oh, Lord. So I think there, uh, there were several Womp Rat references, oh like several they, sayings. There's no more. They, they can't think of any more metaphors on Tatooine. They all have Womp Rats in them. 
It's like they. I guess they're everywhere. They're everywhere, and except that they're two meters, and we don't see any of them. It's like, well, can yeah, you talk right. about something other than womp rats? They they said it like four or five times. There were a lot. Yeah, yeah. I think so. To go back to your earlier question, you know, there's going to be hits and misses. There's going to be the the references that do more when they land. There's going to be the references that do less when they don't land. Um, and then there's going to be just. You know, the things that fly right over my head. I did not realize mm. until I went on the internet after seeing this that um, apparently um, uh, the the Marshall's uh, speeder is, is made from one of Anakin's, oh, Anakin's pod, pod racer racing. engines. Yeah. Or Which, again, is like, wait, aren't there more than, like, six things on, on Tatooine? We have to yeah. just keep repurposing the six things over and over again. And maybe that does speak to, okay, now you're going a little too far down. You know, you're disappearing into your own belly button a little too much when it starts to become improbable. Not just improbable, but, like, head-scratching that why would this be that thing? Yeah, especially in a galaxy that is so large and rich. I think yeah. that's the thing a lot of people struggle with is like what we love about Star Wars is that it's so expansive, right? Yeah. And there's all this amazing, amazing aliens and amazing technology. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it feels like we have foregone creating new things exactly for the oh, let's show us let's show you this thing that you know already and yep. that will get that dopamine hit out of you. Yep. Is Spotchka a thing? Because we've seen it was Sp- referenced last season. Yes, was was it a thing before, before that? that? I don't know of it before okay. that. Okay, yeah, it's like give us a few new things every once in a while. Give us, give us like a new start building on instead of yes. just re-referencing. I I think would be, you know, sort of my recommendation. Um, but you know, for as many lines as they have to walk, as many tightropes and 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 not to mention the fact that, you know, I'm sure there's some, you know, overseer at Disney saying, here's what you can use, here's what you can't use, mm-hmm. um, you know, for their own, you know, future purposes or whatever. Um, they're, I still think they're doing a pretty excellent job. Yeah. Um, well, any last thoughts from you about where you want to see things go or like what storylines you're interested in? Any any conspiracy theories? I'm I'm all ears. I... I, that's funny you say that because I was just going to talk about Ooh. Baby Yoda, who was also all Ooh. ears. Um, <laughs> the I want to see more of Baby Yoda doing the Baby Yoda thing. Um, I want to see more of the relationship that's developing between them. Um, I which which is also you know the the thing that you think that you want that when you see more of it. You know, that's it's little touches here and there would be wonderful. Um, not just like he puts him in a saddlebag and then like Baby Yoda has to find his way into the door and into the spittoon. Um, but I, I want to see. I really love the character of the Mandalorian. I think um, I want to see him get a little more tested. Hmm. Um, I want to see him have to come to a point where he has to be asked to, or he has to make a decision between sacrificing some part of what seems to be a very rigid code um, for either a greater good or something that he's decided is worth just as much to him. And maybe that will be the child. Maybe that's, you know, eventually what's going to happen is he's going to, you know, have to, to make a pretty large personal choice. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and there was, you know, some little hint of that back in in the Seven Samurai episode last uh, season yeah. with with the woman that you know he basically was trying to get him to settle down with her, um, which I thought was eh, not not the most convincing. But I do, you know, it, we've seen at this point how much being a Mandalorian means to him, um, and that it's it's you know it is the thing that is has has kept him going for a very long time and it's it it's the framework that his life revolves around and I I would like to see that shaken just a little. Oh, I'm totally with you. The the challenge, I think that's where the interesting point comes is like you said, we've seen him this defines him. Mm-hmm. It is it is who he is to him. It's part of his identity and having to have him challenge at some point. And I thought last last season they did a nice job of that with the scene where uh, IG-11 has to patch him up and remove the oh, helmet yeah. and points out that he's not a, you know, I'm not a person. I can see you with your helmet off. And he was willing to sort of make that allowance. That was part of it, right? We saw him challenged about his his feelings on droids and like how his mm-hmm. trauma had played out. But I agree that it continually testing that element, especially because in other other stuff that we've seen Mandalorians in, and he's presumably going to come in contact with more Mandalorians as the season goes, you know, continues, um, have proved that uh, they have differing interpretations, right? Mm-hmm. Like any like any group that has these sort of laws, there's different, uh, you know, interpretations of that and different uh, degrees of strictness in mm-hmm. how much they're observed. And I think there's almost a hint of that with, you know, our faux Mandalorian this week removing his helmet all the way is him having to deal with this idea of like, well, what if I'm just taking this like a lot more seriously yeah. than everybody else is? Yeah, and I think that's an interesting question, and it's nice to see you know that character develop and have to come to terms with that. Yep. All right. Well, there's a lot to talk about in this episode, and I'm sure there will be a lot more as the season goes along. Um, but I would love to thank my guest this week, Helene Wecker. Thank you so much for being here and talking about the Mandalorian with me. Well, thank you very much because this this has been a real treat. And that's our show for this week. We'll be back next week to talk about Chapter 10 of The Mandalorian. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you then.